Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. everyone. Welcome to All The Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And this is the show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. We're happy to be here. So we're only on YouTube right now. So I don't know, tell your friends or <laughs> post something on Facebook. Well, we already posted. And so hopefully people will come on over. I also put a link on the Facebook page. So yeah, helping us out on the show tonight and every night, every day, is the one and only Bob Bontrager. There he is, yes. professional button poster. Fresh haircut, look at him. Yes. Coming on through. And we are live tonight, uh, so we want to invite you to add your voice to the conversation. You can jump in that chat box on YouTube and say hi and interact with us. We do actually interact with the chat box so it's not like one of those situations you go on a live stream and they never talk about the chat box. Like we actually look at it. It's on screen. So I'm um, glad to see everyone. Uh, Alicia Moss is our moderator tonight. So uh, glad to have you here and be sure to like and share the show. Uh, and if you normally share it on Facebook, uh, just make sure to let people know that we are on YouTube tonight. YouTube, yes. All right. And this show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity, Theology Mom Podcast, Family 210 Clothing. Woohoo! Yes. And we've got some new designs. Speak Truth to Error. Yes. It's one of those designs. So you can check out that design and all our designs at family210.com. All our designs come in a variety of styles and colors. And product. Yeah. So you can get a baby onesie. I really like the baby onesies. I'm sorry. I do. And, you know, face so, masks. Well, and... We had someone ask us this week, well, I want that in a woman's cut. Well, guess what? It's there. It's there. Yes. So, and a portion of every sale goes uh, to help our family and to help the ministry. Yes. So we appreciate your support. So those are some ways that you can participate with us. And if you have tuned in tonight, you have tuned in on the right night, because we have a big announcement. Yes, we do. I feel like we always doing some kind of announcement. I know. Yes. We're always doing big things yes. here. I don't know how we ever sleep. Someone wrote in today. They're like, do you guys ever sleep? No. Let's just be <laughs> honest. No. So, all right. So we're going to play the big announcement. Not quite yet. We're going to stall. Uh, you know what? Since we have time. Yeah. I today, I today, well, today I had a conversation with Seiko Woods. That's right. Yes. It wasn't a conversation, though. It was a conversation. It was three hours of black church. It was. It was three hours of black church, but it was awesome. And All I'm, they needed was an organ and a tambourine, and it would have been black church. It was awesome. You know, they got organs in white churches and other kind of churches. Yeah, sorry, people. But they don't play them the same way. That is true. <laughs> it is may not be a B3 Hammond. Yeah. But um, check out that conversation yep. on our Facebook page, and then go and like Seiko Woods. That's right. Okay, and now for the big... Surprise. Hey everyone, Monique and Krista here with the Center for Biblical Unity. And we have an exciting announcement for you. The Center for Biblical Unity's second annual UP conference is coming soon. UP stands for Uniting 
people. And our theme for this year's conference is biblical justice in an age of social justice. We're going to be bringing clear definitions to words like justice, oppression, marginalization, and looking at practical ways that we can do justice today. We have some amazing keynote and breakout speakers that are going to be presenting at the conference, and you will have the opportunity to learn from this amazing panel of people. Our speakers will include Scott Allen, author of Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, Abraham Hamilton III, policy analyst at American Family Radio and host of Hamilton's Corner. We'll be giving a talk on how to exegete your community, and then I will round out the conference with a charge to do justice. Now, if that's not enough for you, we will also have some amazing breakout sessions by Dr. Cal Beisner. He is going to be talking to us about human rights and what is a human right and how are human rights being redefined? Latasha Fields, she is a homeschool advocate and speaks to churches about how they can grab a vision for having a homeschool community right on their campus. Our friend and blogger Sam Say will be bringing a talk about justice for the unborn and some practical steps that local churches can take to help protect the unborn in their area. And then I will tackle steps that ministries or individuals can take to be able to start their own justice ministry. Now, we also have two other breakout sessions scheduled, but they're still in the planning phase. Now, the cost of the conference begins at $45 and you will be able to purchase an individual license or a license for your church or group so you can watch together wherever you are. This is a 100% virtual conference, so it's a wonderful opportunity to get some people together and watch. Okay, I know that that's a lot of information, so let me summarize or recap our UP conference. The second annual Uniting People Conference will be September 9th to 11th. This is a completely virtual conference. Ticket prices start at $45. There will be four plenary sessions and six breakout sessions to choose from. So you can get all the details over on the website. Just go to centerforbiblicalunity.com backslash up 2021. And you can get all the information there. We look forward to seeing you in September. Okay. Yes. We are so excited. We literally cannot wait. We've been planning this and talking about the vision for the UP conference. Some of you attended our UP conference last year at this time. And this is building on top of that foundation that we we started last year. Tell us a little bit about what your big vision is for the Uniting People Conference. My big vision for the Uniting People Conference for this one as, as a, a smaller scale and then as we continue to grow is to really be able to create opportunities for people to learn how to do justice. You know, culture is putting out vague ideas on how we should do justice. And then what they're putting out is really... or 
could be considered sin in some ways, advocating for things like reproductive justice, which is another form of um, another way of saying abortion or justice for, you know, queer or gender issues and things like that. How do we bring justice back to the word of God because our God is just and then do justice as we are commanded in Micah from a very biblical perspective? And so Krista's coined the term justice entrepreneurs. We want to be people who do justice and we want to be able to equip you to understand how can you do justice? What are the different ways that justice can be done? So we want to let everyone know that for the next 24 hours, if you're watching this stream right now, this is going to be the lowest price that's ever going to be because you're going to get the early bird price plus 10% off. So if you want to go to the conference, now's the time to go hit that button and secure your ticket. So use the promo code FREEDOM. And it's good for the next 24 hours. So, so 6 p.m. Pacific tomorrow. tomorrow night. So FREEDOM is the promo code. is a 4th of July special. So again, this is going to be the cheapest price um, that you that you can get. Like you after tomorrow, you can still get the early bird price. We might have some promos later, but it won't be at this level. So if you want to get the absolute lowest price, if you're if you're on a budget, this is the lowest price. So enter Freedom as your promo code during your checkout. So you can. Go check out all the speakers and and the dates and all the details at the website. Go to centerforbiblicalunity.com backslash up 2021. Yes. And I love Caleb. Um, His handle on YouTube is Engaged Truth. He says, no willy-nilly justice. No, we are not willy-nilly people. We are people of faith. We are people who live according to scripture. Not willy-nilly. We are not just going to pick up and do some some rogue random justice because somebody told me this is this is justice. No, 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 no. We will educate and equip people to do biblical justice. All right. So let's get into it here. We have our friend, Dr. Scott Waller, that we're going to be talking to tonight. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about Dr. Waller? Dr. Waller is a professor at Biola University. He's a um, the poli sci, a, one of the poli sci professors at Biola University. Yeah. And we reached out to him in conjunction with Freedom. Yeah. And especially looking at um, FDR, Frederick Delano Roosevelt's speech on the four freedoms. And we'll talk about that and get into that a yeah. little bit. But he is becoming a dear friend to the ministry. That's right. We enjoy him very much. And this is kind of our special kind of Fourth of July freedom type of episode. And so I think it's going to be a really good conversation. So let's get Dr. Waller on here. Hello. Hi, ladies. Happy Fourth of July to you. Happy Fourth. It's good to see you. It's good great to see, to see you. you. So maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in political science. And some people might not even really know what political science is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it does seem uh, it does seem that many Christians think that uh, uh, for a Christian to be involved in political science, given what we see in, in political discourse and political activities today, that it, that it does seem kind of odd that a believer would be involved in political science. Um, I serve two roles. Uh, I am in the political science department at Bayou University, and I have been there for close to 20 years now. And 
that's really one of my roles. And, and I definitely have an academic platform. I, I, I write, speak, and teach out of my academic platform. But then there's a, a, a sort of a ministry outgrowth that I do that is equally important to me. And I, I work with Dr. J.P. Moreland, who I'm, I know you all are familiar with, in a ministry called Eidos Christian Center. And it is the, it is the Great Commission gospel outgrowth of our academic platforms. And, and, it, and how I got interested in political science was, quite frankly, getting tired of getting my tail kicked in a ministry environment. I served on uh, a parachurch ministry for 20 years with my wife, and, and doing college campus ministry, one thing became increasingly clear to me very early in our days there, and that was that uh, there is a world of ideas that a minister of the gospel, uh, as you all are, um, need to be familiar with, and I wasn't. I, I was an accounting finance major, and for all the virtues of an accounting finance major, it didn't really acquaint me with the world of ideas, and uh, that started a kind of graduate school quest for me to become more conversant in these world of ideas. I came out to uh, Biola and Talbot Seminary in the mid-1990s studying uh, philosophy, uh, analytic philosophy, ethics, bioethics, the philosophy of religion, and uh, I thought I was done and, and until uh, some mentors like J.P. Moreland and Bill Craig came alongside me and said, if you want to have an impact for the university for a lifetime, you need to get a Ph.D. And I thought, well, OK, uh, what do I do a Ph.D. in? And uh, uh, a guy who you may or may not know named Frank Pastore. Frank was a, oh, yes. radio, Frank was a radio host here yeah. in California before his uh, untimely death um, I guess in 2012, yeah. um, he said, he said, if you want to see how ideas play out, study political science. And that has just been becoming increasingly true and important in our culture today that believers are conversant and involved in this particular uh, important part of our culture, political science. And uh, that is, as uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, 10, that we are engaged in a, in a battle for a, a contention for uh, involving the world of ideas. It's a spiritual battle, and it's a battle that uh, I'm quite pleased to be a part of my training in political science. Hmm. That's so good. I, I think that um, you and I probably were at Talbot around the same time. I was in the early to mid-90s into the later 90s in my second master's degree. J.P. Moreland had the same pep talk with me about, oh, yeah. you know, getting my Ph.D. Unfortunately, or fortunately, it was good for me. Um, my husband and I had a family and I, I put a pause on, on my education. I didn't finish my program, but um, I, I totally have lived through that, that little pep talk. And so I'm glad yeah. that, you know, we have guys like you who have gone on into academia and really um, tried to sow into the next generation. That's so important and, and engaging in the realm of ideas. Um, I think that it'll be instructive tonight for us to explore th that intersection of our faith with the public square. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I think Christians uh, sometimes have different models. They have different approaches and how we do that. Um, but I think the, you, that we're in agreement here that, you know, the public square needs Christians. They need the Christian voice and that we can act as voices of transformation and really standing for um, standing for common good for all. I don't know if you want to maybe give us a little thumbnail. It's not 
something that's in our questions, but kind of giving us a thumbnail from your perspective of how you look at Christian engagement in the public square and what a Christian's involvement in that might be. Well, I, I think from two fronts. One is um, we, we uh, if we take Christianity seriously, then, then we are people uniquely in touch with truth. Um, not that we are possessors of all truth, but there are, there are things that uh, as believers we are um, enlivened with that I think from a stewardship point of view, it is incumbent upon us um, that if we really believe that stemming from this truth uh, comes human flourishing, that uh, the political that, that we find ourselves in and, the, and the, uh, the, particularly the American experiment in democracy demands that, that uh, people who are uh, familiar with truth be involved in that. And uh, we live in a democracy. And that would be, I guess, the second thing I would say. And, and, and so from a certain point, I'd say, why not? Um, there's nothing second class about being a Christian and being an American, and um, our voice is at least equally as important as, as other voices in the public square. But from the standpoint, and, and maybe we'll have a chance to talk about this uh, during your program tonight, uh, there is something special about the American political order as it relates to freedom, truth, and even this question of religion. And that's, that's really been one of my primary research interests, looking at the intersection of religion and politics, and particularly evangelicalism and, and, and Christianity, it relates to politics. So, um, you know, if not us, who is, is really, I guess, what I'd say in summary. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things that I would like you to do before um, we get on to like a definition of freedom, because Krista did allude to it a little bit, um, but for people who would say, you know, I'm, I'm still not really clear on exactly what p- political science is as the art form. What would your definition of political science be? Yeah, it stems from the definition of politics itself. Uh, there's, a, there's a modern definition of politics, which is really boils down to kind of a, a, a power allocation. A famous uh, political scientist named Harold Laswell said that politics is, is simply about um, who gets what, when, and how. And that's a, that's, a, that's a very modern notion of politics, a more classic and perhaps uh, one that more resonates with the, with the biblical understanding of the, of the, of the political enterprise. Would be an it would be an ancient understanding of politics, and that involves how we ought to order our lives together. We live together in collective society, and the ancients believed that there were better and worse ways of doing it. When you look at the scriptures, you can see that that that, that government is a God ordained thing, and so the discipline of political science involves the involves the question. And there are normative questions involved in this. There are right and wrong answers. Um, I would I would argue to these issues. And the, the discipline of political science involves that quest um, to answer the important questions involving how we ought to order our lives together. Hmm. Thank you. That's helpful. Yeah. So maybe let's get into a little bit about we're focusing this conversation on the issue of freedom. And that's a word that is used in the Bible. We use it in the public square. So let's give some a little bit of definition uh, to that term so that we understand what it is that we're talking about when we use that, that term as, as Christians and as Americans. Yeah, sure. And I'm, I'm grateful that, that we're starting there because if, if there's one thing that is a crucial project for us at, at Biola with our political science students and to the general student population and as they take our general education courses is to impress upon them 
that they have been swimming in some water. If, uh, if you're under 30 in this country, you have been swimming in a water in terms of uh, a common understanding of freedom that is markedly different than the concept of freedom that we lived in in this country for over 250 years. So it is an especially crucial area for citizens of a political order really to have an understanding of freedom. Because as I said, if you're over the age of 30 in this country, you have been witness to a profound change in the understanding of liberty or freedom. If you're under the age of 30, your entire lifetime has been governed by an understanding of liberty that is driving much of what we see going on in the, in the political and, and cultural debates of our day. So let me start in reverse. Let me, let me define or give you the definition of freedom that's the kind of operative understanding of freedom. A sense of freedom that I think is quite unbiblical, and I'll have uh, something to say about that here in a minute, but let me start with the, what, what is commonly understood in the mind of the average American today when it comes to uh, a definition of freedom or liberty. Political liberty or freedom today is largely associated with the unfettered or almost unlimited choice that, that uh, is uh, attached to what is called the autonomous individual. That is, the freedoms associated with citizens today means largely that a person should be able to be free to do whatever he or she chooses short of bear harm to another individual. And this means that under that sense of freedom, there are largely no constraints, there are no standards that can be imposed upon an individual other than one, other than anything that individual chooses to impose upon himself or herself. In some ways, this is a kind of libertarian sense of freedom, uh, akin to if, if, if uh, you or your listeners are familiar with uh, John Stuart Mill. But if you're under the age of 30 today, that sense of freedom sounds very common sense. And I know with my students at Biola, when I explain to them that kind of definition of freedom, it's, I'm often greeted by, well, yeah, what other understanding of freedom could there be? It has become so commonplace in American discourse today, and even in American constitutional law, this understanding of freedom or liberty um, that, it, that it is simply metastasized, not only at sort of the current popular level, but it is metastasized into the legal and constitutional world in this country. And, here, and, here's, and here's where it comes from. Um, this, this, this kind of idea had been burgeoning in the legal field, particularly for, for decades. But then in 1992, interestingly, in a case involving the issue of abortion, the Planned Parenthood v. Casey case, Justice Kennedy, uh, penned what is now famously or infamously called the mystery clause and see if you can uh, i'll read the mystery clause to you now and see if you can see this this kind of liberty associated with the autonomous individual uh with no constraints on him or herself here's the mystery clause from a 1992 court case at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That was the liberty associated with the almost unfettered individual becoming instantiated into constitutional law. And that understanding of liberty, and I've written on this, and I'm, I'm uh, finishing a book this summer, um, on a famous uh, church state thinker from the 20th century named Richard John Newhouse. 
Um, but but this, this understanding of liberty starting in 1992 has driven much of constitutional law all the way up through and including Obergefell. And it is, uh, which was the case that uh, legalized gay marriage. So it's a very important question culturally and politically and now constitutionally and legally uh, in terms of answering your question. So that's well, so far what you've laid out there is kind of the popular level definition of freedom that the average man on the street, woman on the street is going to think of freedom as kind of the right to kind of almost create their own truth, their own reality and, and to have unfettered, the unfettered ability to live their life in, in a way that makes sense to them. Especially if they're under 30. Yeah. And it's so funny because the language that he's using of like, you know, you get to create your own life, your own history. That language comes from critical theory. But, you know, nobody's really going to go down that path. We're not here for all that today. But, you know, but it does. <laughs> all right. So maybe you can tee us up a little bit more historically or classically on what that definition was of freedom or liberty. Yeah, absolutely. And, and by the way, Monique, your, your comment's a good one in terms of um, what stems from this understanding of liberty as a, as a kind of uh, the unfettered choices of an autonomous individual. Um, there is a whole new field of law that has sprung out of this and it's called dignity law. And uh, dignity used to be defined um, arguably in religious terms, that you have dignity because there's something intrinsic or innate to you. And that innateness stems from you being created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. That's the old sense of dignity that used to drive sort of Western thinking. Under this new conception of liberty, dignity literally becomes synonymous with choice or autonomy. And that I demonstrate my dignity through my choice. And you would demonstrate indignity toward me if you were to in any way get in the way of my choice. And uh, perhaps we'll have, we'll have time to talk about this today in terms of how it affects religious freedoms in this country, but religious people might be seen as the last people in, in American society who are seen to be imposing something on the uh, uh, otherwise supposedly free choices of uh, autonomous individuals. Yes, and I think that that goes to and again, maybe we'll, this will be later on in the show, but like this idea of Christian oppression or Christian privilege mm. and, you know, what that looks like as we stand for something that is um, in direct contrast to the idea of my choice and, and my like that I get to outline and write my own history and, you know, just I'm solely autonomous. Yeah. So to Krista, to, to answer your question, what what drove uh, American thinking, uh, American constitutional law, uh, and and to be honest, the general culture in America for over 250 years. It's one of the it's one of the most amazing things to be able to say to people, um, particularly again under the age of 30. Um, do you know that your your common understanding of liberty is really is a kind of new vintage? That for 250 years, this country operated under what was um, called the American Experiment in Ordered liberty. So really the traditional understanding of liberty, and really, I, um, and, I'll, and I'll try to make the case that this uh, aligns with the biblical understanding of liberty, this sense of ordered liberty drove American thought for 250 years, only to be, you know, in a in, in recent vintage, to be displaced by what we've already talked about. So what is ordered liberty? 
Ordered liberty defines freedom in terms of an end or a goal or a purpose. If you, if you understand the Greek word teleology, ordered liberty defines liberty in terms of a telos. In other words, under this understanding of liberty, political freedom is meant to be the exhibition of our agency, our, of our freedom toward the end of some purpose or goal beyond ourselves. In, in a classic Greek understanding, that which was beyond ourselves was coined virtue. In the American context, the end or goal or purpose of liberty was often captured in more general terms like morality or a common recognition of some shared sense of decency. And make no mistake about it, for most of our country's history, what was seen as moral or decent certainly had either explicit or implicit religious undertones in this. So one of the most powerful aspects of the secularization of our culture has been to sort of remove that sort of undergirding um, to the end or purpose of our liberty, because um, under this ordered sense of liberty, Our freedom, our choices are guided by something greater than ourselves. And this ordered sense of liberty is quite distinct from this modern notion of liberty, because really this modern sense of, uh, of liberty is really just the complete reign of the autonomous individual. To have an ordered sense of liberty is to see freedom is the ability to, to pursue that which one ought to pursue. And that oughtness is tied to a standard beyond the individual. When I explain this to college students, it's, it's almost like I blow a dog whistle because that is just a kind of counterintuitive idea. And this is even true with Christian students. Um, and as, as we'll uh, cover some biblical terrain here in a minute, it ought to be, as we study the scriptures, we ought to see this sense of liberty or freedom stemming um, uh, from the scriptures. And uh, well, so how do these contending notions of freedom stack up? Uh, let me just, if, if, if we can, let me, let me cover some biblical terrain on this, and, and, and perhaps uh, your, our, our listeners here might want to jot down a few passages of Scripture uh, to look at these. But all of these passages of Scripture, and these are not exhaustive, but I think they, they demonstrate the following point. Throughout the Scriptures, believers are admonished to utilize their freedom for the sake of something higher than themselves. That is not the reign of the autonomous individual. Take, for example, 1 Peter 2.16. Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but, be, but as servants of God. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Romans 6.22, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. A couple more. Psalm 119.45, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought your precepts, not mine, your precepts. Second Timothy 1.7, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Lastly, 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 6.12, 
everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So all of these passages of scripture certainly don't seem to be ratifying uh, the autonomous individual. It calls us to a, a, a much more ordered sense of liberty. So the, the, the direct contrast between this modern understanding of liberty or freedom and a more traditional notion of freedom is an ordered sense of liberty versus an unordered sense of liberty. Maybe another one, <laughs> excuse me, maybe another way of saying that, and we're getting some really good um, discussion there on the chat is, you know, we've got the cultural, the current cultural definition of freedom is about individualism. And I am kind of autonomous. I create my own meaning. I create my own standard of morality. Whereas the great American experiment has classically been, I am free so that I can live the noble life mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I can have a soul, I have a soul that is informed and shaped somewhat by a biblical worldview. And then in freedom, I am able to pursue um, a life that glorifies God and that loves my neighbor. And so this sort of this principled uh, end goal or tel telos, as you said. So I think that sets up a really good compare and contrast because in the American, I, I don't think we have an appreciation for how unique the American experiment really is. Like if you go in other cultures, other countries, other contexts, um, they're not going to probably be as informed with scripture kind of in the background of it. And so I want to word that carefully because I don't want to fall into the error of saying that our country is like a strictly Christian nation, mm -hmm. but there are certainly biblical ideas and principles that was one of the major philosophical streams that helped to inform and shape um, the ideals of our country and our founding documents. And when you strip that away, when you strip those biblical foundations away, then the human person, the citizen, no longer has an inf a worldview that is at least somewhat biblically informed, then the question of the American experiment starts to morph and change as to what that begins to look like um, and how terms are getting redefined, dignity, freedom, liberty. Am I kind of on the, on the right track there with that summary? No, that's absolutely right, and this is not this is not a a, a noticing that that uh, is just indicative to a 21st century person. There was a French sociologist named Alexis de Tocqueville that came over to the United States during the Jacksonian era, the early 1830s, and his fundamental question that he sought to to, to answer and wrote a big fat book called Democracy in America was to ask the question: Why is freedom flourishing in the United States of America? Whereas in other places, and particularly his um, home country of France, uh, you know, if you're familiar with the French Revolution and how long that lasted and the reinstallation of the monarchy, um, th there wasn't a kind of long lastingness to freedom. And, and amongst the observations that Tocqueville made in the 1830s was that religion was America's real first political institution. And, in, and, and in, and in his writings, Tocqueville said that religion teaches Americans how to be free. 
And um, it, it provides a measure of, of really at, at a kind of fundamental level, a self-restraint and what he called self-interest rightly understood that, that otherwise left to our kind of own devices, we would all be kind of just selfish, uh, all about ourselves kind of people. And this Frenchman, a, a Catholic man, but, but a, 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 a sociologist at heart, asked the question, how is it that Americans aren't like that? And one of the fundamental things that he noticed was that people were guided by kind of religious sensibilities that got them outside themselves. And all the things that you mentioned that have caused the United States to flourish uh, for 200 uh, plus years now um, have been stemming from the observations made by a French sociologist in the 1830s. You know, we've talked about like the biblical view of, of freedom and um, where we are today as a country and how far away that is from the original like founding documents and things like that for freedom. What are the freedoms outlined in the First Amendment? Like when we go all the way back what are, to, to some of the founding documents, what do we see as, as being defined as freedom? Well, there's five. Uh, it depends on how you parse them. But generally, political scientists see five different kinds of freedoms noted in the in the First Amendment. There's there's religious freedom, or what's called free exercise rights. Uh, secondly, there's freedom of speech. Thirdly, there's the freedom of the press. Uh, fourthly, the freedom of, of assembly, and then the freedom to petition the government. Go ahead. All right. I was going to, I was going to, I'm like, what, what do all these mean? I want to know, <laughs> can we thread these out a little bit? Yeah. So let's talk about that because th these are some of the, really the foundational principles in, in just a few sentences here that guide historically have guided so much of American life and, and sensibilities and our value system. But I guess what I'd like to probe is the assumptions behind those freedoms Mm -hmm. are particularly important for Christians. And as we see those freedoms starting to, I mean, there's, there's a growing movement among college students of like, well, maybe this free speech thing is a little overrated. Maybe we should mm -hmm. only have certain kind of speech be allowed. Maybe, you know, and so I want Christians watching this to really understand why the First Amendment matters to us as Christians and what that tie-in is. Well, uh, yes. I mean, particularly freedom of speech and freedom of religion are under uh, increasing assault and viewed with uh, a lot of skepticism. So these are absolutely important questions uh, for Christians, but they're, they're important questions um, for uh, Americans in general, because the very viability of our political order, because of these changes in, in, in common understandings and things that we're focusing today on, on the notion of freedom, and very appropriately so, given the weekend we find ourselves in. Um, you know, Ronald Reagan was uh, famous and offsided as saying that, that uh, you know, we should pay close attention and guard our freedoms jealously because they're one generation away um, from, from being intruded upon. And, and of course, as, as uh, religious believers, we are uh, very much concerned about religious freedom and, and uh, but all of us today, and particularly the religious voice, is also concerned about uh, freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, because it is increasingly the case, given the, the advent of cancel culture, that there are certain just voices that are um, 
labeled hateful and just non-acceptable. And um, it, this generation is uh, starkly different than previous generations in that they are willing under um, the sort of pressures, general pressures of the cultural ideas and the cancel culture to repress certain forms of speech. We see this in, in the mainstream media, we see it in social media in general and in, 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 in big tech. We see that there are certain voices that have just been uh, labeled hateful and therefore do not enjoy the benefits of uh, the First Amendment protections of speech. Um, they're just viewed as kind of hateful. And, and in the particular instance of a religious voice, um, religious voices are viewed as, as kind of uh, reactionary, backward, uh, a product of, a, of an old way of thinking. And, and those voices particularly maybe need to be silenced or marginalized at least. And, and this has impact on, on religious freedom. When we, when we have a, a situation where, um, and this is particularly the case when we see the uh, increasing liberties uh, surrounding uh, sexuality, gender, et cetera, you start to see that, that um, there is a clash between newfound sexual liberties and religious liberties. And I believe the, the, the current, and, and I think this uh, woman has been in this uh, position for quite some time now. I know she was put in there by the Obama administration and continued through the Trump administration. Her name is Kai Feldblum, and she was the head of the EEOC, the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. And, and, and in her confirmation hearing, it was rather controversial, where she said that, that in, in the increasing conflict between sexual liberties and religious liberties, she couldn't think of a single instance in which religious liberty would win. And we have come a long way, and this gets back to Krista's comments a few minutes ago. If we get to a point in this country where religious free exercise is viewed in tantamount as simply uh, hateful discrimination, uh, then we've come a long way from the foundations of this country. Uh, we've come a long way from a, when a French sociologist came into this country in the 1830s and noticed that religion played a vital public role in American society toward the health and maintenance of the political order. Um, every school child for 100 years read George Washington's farewell address. And in that farewell address, Washington, and I'm, I'm somewhat paraphrasing here, said that we would be fools to think that this political order could continue to prosper if we, if we don't see religion as providing a key public role toward the maintenance of our, of our democratic institutions. Well, we have come a long way um, from Washington's words, and this, this represents threats um, to both religious freedom and the, the more general freedom of speech. I'm wondering about tying back into something you said earlier that the redefinition of dignity is, and, and maybe we could restate this because it, it sounded like what you said earlier was that how we're redefining dignity is now that certain speech, um, or unless I completely embrace everything that you're about, that I'm violating your dignity. And it seems like we are, we're kind of redefining that in a way that freedom of, of thought and freedom of speech is being eclipsed by how we are reconceiving of human dignity. Maybe you can help me kind of draw these connections out in sure. a little bit more explicit way. No, that's right. If dignity has been redefined as the mere expression of your autonomy, 
and and that entails the kind of acceptance uh, by all players of of my autonomy choices. And this course of plays out in identity politics and all the the identity issues involving gender and and, and these kinds of things. Um, if if that's the new understanding of dignity, then there there needs to be a kind of individual and collective acceptance that the the reign of the autonomous individual is indeed a reign, and that there should be no challenge to that. And uh, as I think I've said before, it may be that that uh, religious conservatives in this country of various and sundry stripes may be the last people to refuse to bow the knee to the to the autonomous individual. And I think that's what. Um, really is getting at the at the nature of your question, Krista. If you're making the connection to the evolving understanding of liberty, as we talked about before, you might see that the greatest threat to the autonomous individual stems from a perspective that there might be moral standards beyond the individual that he, that that even the that even in a political society that we're accountable to, um, in addition to the the individual, and that represents a threat. Um, to the reign of the autonomous individual. And as long as that reign has been associated with dignity um, uh, to challenge or question, or at least at very, very least not bow the knee uh, to, the, to the claims of the autonomous individual um, it is sort of seen as an act of indignity. Moral standards and the thought that there could be objective truth, that there could be someone else who actually sets the plumb line for the moral standard, because now that takes away from my autonomy, that takes away from my reign. It, right. there, there's someone else who, who truly is reigning. So if we're gonna talk about our First Amendment freedoms, you know, the freedom of speech, uh, freedom of religion, and if I have a religion that appeals to an objective moral standard, objective truth standard, and then I want to use my freedom of speech to speak out on that, but then that is now being deemed by the redefining of dignity to be a form mm -hmm. of violence. Yes. That's like a microcosm of, of our current cultural mm -hmm. moment, and that's why it is so interesting to me that the American experiment we cannot take the freedom of speech for granted, the freedom of assembly, you know, the freedom of religion, because it is uniquely in our in our country that we have tried to build this idea into our society, into the public square. Once that goes away, we become in a very precarious place where the voices in the majority or the vo voices of the most powerful can then silence mm -hmm. the minority, which is exactly what the founding fathers were trying to prevent. Yeah. So this is a I, I'm hoping people are, are appreciating how important these these foundational freedoms truly are. They're not just some some little thing over off here in the corner. <laughs> like this is vital for the flourishing of our own religion in our country. Mm -hmm. So. Now, a few months ago, I actually read an article in um, on the fee.org website, and it was about FDR's um, Frederick, Frederick Delano Roosevelt's Fe Franklin. Frederick, Franklin. Why do I call him Frederick? I sorry, don't I don't know. Franklin, Frederick, you know, I'm not a poli sci person. Sorry, friends. Oh, <laughs> okay, Franklin. I called him Frederick earlier, too. I know, and I sorry. didn't correct you. Well, thank you. Why wouldn't you correct me? Well, you were talking. Pardon us while we have a moment. <laughs> you let me be up there. Frederick Flintstone, Franklin, y'all yeah. know who he is, FDR. 
He wrote a famous speech called um, The Four Freedoms. Can you talk a bit about what the four freedoms are? Well, and I'm going to first well, play well, the clip. Okay, okay. Because I'm, well, I'm, what I'm curious to know is, one, what are they? But then, two, is this the moment where, or um, in this era where we begin to see a turning or a shifting of yeah. the tide? He, he explains it in the clip. So we have a clip from FDR uh, with captions because the audio back in the 40s wasn't terrific. So you can hopefully read the captions and hear the audio. But this is really, I think, a pivotal moment that's that in the history of starting to redefine these terms that we want to unpack here. And, you know, we think about, well, this just happened a few years ago or this just happened in 1992 or whatever. No, there this this has been coming along in the 20th mm-hmm. century. So let's play this FDR clip. Uh, from his famous speech, The Four Freedoms. In the future days that we seek to make secure, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third is freedom from want, which translated into world terms means economic understandings which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. The fourth is freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. Okay, so, that's, so are we up? We're up. Okay, we're up. All right. So... So the four freedoms in FDR's speech were freedom of speech, freedom of worship, which I would say is from the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. But then he has these other two freedoms, freedom from want and freedom from fear. And we should probably say that this speech was given in 1941. So, you know, the World War Two was on the horizon and there was um, definitely a lot of fear at that time of you know, what would the world be like at that time? The Germans were winning the war and it was a lot of questions as to whether or not, um, you know, we wouldn't the world would endure uh, the, the rise of Nazism. So let's talk about this a little bit, Dr. Waller, about, you know, why is this speech important? Mm-hmm. And talk to us a little bit about your perspectives on these freedoms. Yeah, I mean, this uh, this speech represents something of a, of a kind of an outgrowth of progressivism in general, Franklin Delano Roosevelt being, you know, the, the first 
Well, I mean, there were progressive presidents before Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but, but the opportunity that the Great Depression afforded uh, to change the trajectory of American government under a kind of progress, progressive impulse. Um, you know, so this speech, uh, which was really just a State of the Union speech, we know it as the Four Freedoms speech today, but as you could see from the backdrop, it was just Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the well of the House of Representatives giving um, his constitutionally mandated State of the Union address. And these four freedoms, the first two seem, you know, you know, a uh, kind of, but of course, you know, I mean, freedom of speech and freedom of religion, although he, he does couch the, the freedom of religion of freedom of worship and probably don't have time to talk about this, but, but there's, there, uh, we need to be careful that, that we don't uh, use synonymously the, the free exercise of religion with the freedom of worship. One has a kind of public connotation and the other has a kind of privatized connotation, but notwithstanding that, you know, the freedom from one and freedom from fear. The freedom from one, of course, um, would would have the opportunity to resonate in the American mind, given that the Great Depression was not uh, fully recovered from yet in January of 1941. And then the freedom from fear, of course, as you mentioned, you know, Nazi Germany uh, had overrun large parts of Europe and um, we, the United States had not entered the war yet. That would be in December of 1941, you know, almost 12 months later. So, um, there was a question of whether democracy um, and its viability would continue given the military threat. So the freedom from fear um, was, was obviously something that, that uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt leveraged. Um, the four freedom speech though, as I mentioned, needs to be understood in light of, and, and I think this is really what um, you're getting at here. It needs to be understood in, in terms of a greater context within, within the progressive push for progress. And within this progress, um, progress, it was said, couldn't be made unless there was a kind of skepticism or even outright rejection of some founding principles. Uh, uh, there was an increasing call on the need for centralization of an effort guided by government experts um, and a significant, therefore, ramping up of government power. And there was an overt move away from uh, things that had guided this country for you know, close to 200 years at that point. Um, federalism and a more limited sense of government. So while the first two of these freedoms seems to be uh, pretty non-controversial, as I think you've mentioned, the freedom from want and the freedom from fear really are the things that are seen as a kind of watershed uh, that this, this speech sort of represents, that it really represents something um, uh, markedly different. So let, let's talk about them in turn if you want. Um, the freedom from want. Um, what would this mean? This, this, this arguably conflates and confuses two very important kinds of rights uh, involved here. One would be a negative right. A negative right is the freedom to exercise uh, your own sense of direction for your own destiny. Um, that would be a, a kind of negative right. What the freedom from, from want and to a certain extent the freedom from fear invokes is something what's called a positive right. And this is the right a citizen has to expect or even demand something from the government. So FDR's speech really reveals a kind of outgrowth from a kind of more progressive impetus in general. And it, and it creates, in my view, a, a fiction that one would have more freedom when a government provides, say, material wants and then, and then in some way, this provides you more freedom. It, it reduces you, one might argue, to a kind of supplicant. And somehow this makes you free. When Dr. The Waller, 
I'm sorry. I, I, so I, I want to make sure that we that we're getting like the full picture. So FDR was responsible for the New Deal, which was a bunch of different social programs. Are you saying that the the um, start of the New Deal and all of these social programs were his way of of um, enacting like the freedom from want? Yeah, I mean, of course, for the first time in American history during the New Deal, uh, it it you know uh, FDR there was no secret about it. He he announced it um, in, in the late 1920s as he campaigned, and then as he gained the presidency in in 1932. This was the idea that there that there needed to be initially in light of the Great Depression and its and its uh, implications, and then the growing uh, sense of fear associated with entering the Second World War. Um, that, that the idea that the federal government needed to do things that heretofore it had not done, and that represented a movement away from a more limited sense of government that provided negative rights to American citizens. And FDR argued, um, and this speech represents this, particularly with the freedom from want, is the idea that, that, that citizens could expect and perhaps even could demand things from their government in terms of positive rights. And that's the, the distinction uh, I wanted to, to, to point out. And, and But one might argue that this represents a kind of fake or faux freedom in a sense that um, what heretofore was the responsibility of self-determination now becomes something that the government um, kind of controls and overrides on. And this represents um, arguably not an, an extension of freedom, but perhaps a curtailing of one's freedom. Hmm. Now, I have to tell you, FDR used to be Monique's favorite president. When she came here, you, you just be letting cats out the bag left and right. Yes. <laughs> we um, used to have conversations was about, my the, favorite president. about the New Deal. And I was like, oh, wow. I think I'm more of a Ronald Reagan kind of gal. And we used to have yeah. fun conversations. Like trickle down economics didn't trickle down far enough. Yeah. yeah. We used to have yeah. all those conversations. Yes. I am. Um, I, man, I remember writing about FDR in school and just so appreciating all of his social programs. Yes. Y'all, I, I have had a change of heart, y'all. Um, don't judge me. I'm still growing. So I'm wondering then, is there a connection between some of this groundwork that FDR laid uh, through the New Deal and the Depression, his Depression-era programs, and, you know, really being a, a major voice in the growth of what we call progressivism in the 20th century like, how do you see that enduring legacy playing out now? You know, like, what is some of the fruit of that now that we're a generation or two down the road with the implications of these social policies? Well, um, the growth and size of, of the size and scope of the federal government since the 1930s has grown exponentially. Um, and it was it was sold to the American people and accepted. Um, you know, FDR was the first person in U.S. history to gain the presidency four times. Uh, died shortly into his fourth term, but nevertheless, it was it was sold to the American people that this kind of fundamental shift toward a more centralized effort, which, by the way, the Europeans had 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 moved to uh, prior to us, but this kind of progressive impetus was a was a rejection of, of federalism and, and limited sense of government of the founding era. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was, was famous for re rejecting um, those kinds of things. And Woodrow Wilson was president during the First World War and, and from 1912 to 1920. Um, and, and, 
and there was sort of this overt rejection that uh, we should be governed by the dead hand of the past and that we needed to, for the sake of progress, uh, move in a different direction. And the centralization of effort um, was part of that purported progress. Uh, this was, this was uh, sold to the American people politically and, and embraced. Um, and then the big wonder was in the aftermath of, of the, the Great Depression and uh, the successful prosecution of the Second World War, whether we would turn the clock back and, and move back to a more limited sense of government. And everybody watched during the Eisenhower years of the 1950s to see whether this would take place. And probably the one of the most notable but least known facts about the Eisenhower administration during those years is that they didn't turn the clock back to a more uh, limited sense of government that had guided us for 150 years at that point. And then really well, by the time you get to the Great Society of the 1960s, um, the ramping up of centralized government power is no longer seen as a kind of response to crisis as it was in the 1930s and 40s, but that it's seen as a virtue unto itself. And, and we still live in light of the Great Society and the, and the uh, package that uh, Lyndon B. Johnson and the Democrats at the time uh, uh, fomented large parts uh, of the national debt that we see um, in terms of uh, spending um, are functions of the Great Society and its outgrowth. So it has is, it is really fundamentally changed the kind of mindset, I think, of the American people. You know, my parents were born in the 1930s and um, were, were influenced as small children by this, but, but there was still a residue of the fact that, that they wouldn't take government um, subsidies or handouts, um, that, that that would be the last thing they would do. Now I think there's a growing uh, acceptance within American culture to kind of have a, a growing expectation that the government needs to provide these kinds of things for us. And that, that represents a really fundamental shift in American thinking right now. It's definitely an expectation and demand. Uh, yeah. I mean, in a lot, in a lot of places and in, in a lot of ways, and, you know, I'm not going to go down the critical race theory route and, you know, the damage that that's doing to certain communities. But I, I do agree. I think there was a generation that would have said, you know, no, we can do it by, you know, on our own. And that's across the board. It's across, you know, ethnic makeup and color lines. And today we, we see something completely different. Um, are there, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, I think this, FDR's idea of the freedom from want has morphed into, and maybe this is too far, but I'd love to hear you, is, is, is it's almost like become a right, like that the government must give me something and that I am dependent on the government. Very few people that I hear in the public square ever stopped to ask the question, well, is that the government's job <laughs> to give yeah. you freedom from want? You know, is it the government's job to take care of you from womb to tomb? Like, is that really what they are designed to do? And can we at least ask the question about God's idea of human government? Like, what is God's authority that he has given human governments and does that include the idea of freedom from want that that is one of the jobs god has given the government i don't know if you have any thoughts about oh, that no, oh you right. do and, oh monique's guys, got thoughts go <laughs> all right go ahead no i don't want to cut off dr waller yeah um, no, i was what 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 the whole want conversation reminds me of is psalm 23 the lord is my shepherd i shall not want 
And in in some ways, I honestly think that, and I mean, I'm not the theologian, so I could be just taking everything out of context, but I honestly think that when the government steps in in such drastic ways to provide all of the things for all of the people, it creates a space where I no longer need to be in conversation with the Lord. I no longer need to rely on the Lord who is my shepherd. I no longer need to participate um, in life from the way that I have been created since be- like before the fall to work or, you know, to rule and to reign over things. The government now has taken that place and says, we will provide for you. You don't need to work. Well, that was before the, before the fall. It's a part of the created order. I should work. There's no need for me to, to go out to rule and to reign, to reign over my family or to reign over, you know, society and things like that, because the government has now stepped into that place. Yeah. I don't know. Just come some of my thoughts well you guys are demonstrating very nicely the answer to the one of the first questions you asked me what you know tell me about what political science is and particularly from a christian point of view the nexus of all these ideas and and i know i'm familiar with your work in the center for biblical unity and and the outgrowth of that you know there is this a sort of a collision or nexus of these ideas that that we, we can today talk about changing understandings of freedom and all this stuff and it just it just by by implication, given the world of ideas, has intersection with um, what is more traditionally on your plate and things to consider. So it, it really demonstrates why, um, you know, a study in political science would um, it'd be important. There would be people involved in these things and conversant in these things. But really, uh, one of the other things I, I wanted to want to add, particularly given the fact that we find ourselves near Independence Day, what was it exactly? Uh, what freedoms? Did did the uh, revolutionaries in 1776? What were they fighting for? And the answer is freedom from arbitrary rule. Uh, Americans did not simply want to be vassals of the British crown hmm. and fought for um, freedom from oppressive government. And um, the worry today is that that under the progressive banner that and and these faux freedoms of freedom from want that we've really kind of resubmitted ourselves to a kind of centralized um, uh, of, of government. And that, that, that was far from the minds of the American founders. The American founders, if, if, you, if, you, if, if anybody wants to take a look at one of the most famous Federalist papers that is, that is oftentimes not read is Federalist 45, and it talks about the nature of the federal government that was created ultimately in 1787 with the Constitution. It was a limited government whose powers would be few and defined and even beyond that, we set up a, sep- a system of checks and balances and separations of powers to ensure that the gradual accumulation of power wouldn't occur within the American system. The progressives, and particularly Woodrow Wilson is famous for saying, hey, you don't, you don't get successful government out of what he called antagonisms, which was the separation of power stuff. Progressives are about the business of coalescing power and centralizing power. And I, uh, I'm pleased that we're getting a chance to talk today about the, the potential um, threats to our freedoms under these supposed um, freedoms from want and freedom from fear that a centralized government can impose upon the American people, particularly as we've talked about as it relates to things like the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion. I'm wondering if you, you've reflected at all and if you have any thoughts on this whole freedom of fear thing um, I know that in context in FDR's speech, he was talking about, you know, war and disarm, disarming nations and that sort of a thing. But it feels like to me, and I've wondered if 
what we're experiencing now with this freedom of fear is the extremes that our country and other countries too, but particularly in our country, since that's what we're talking about, of of not having fear in public places with, with you know, how some of the public policies that have been enacted regarding the pandemic in the last year and a half. You know, that it seems like the guiding principle in many of the public conversations is freedom from fear. What are the the links that we need to go to so that nobody in the room feels afraid. Mm. And I'm, I've wondered at times, like if we're putting the government in charge of really what is an emotional mindset, um, that's concerning to me, you know, because I'm not sure the government can ever do something to help me feel completely fear free. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there's a connection between that idea of freedom or not, but that's just something that I've wondered about. No, you're right. I mean, in, in many cases, um, uh, I, I see far too Americans almost in a, in a kind of uh, deification of the central government that, 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 it, that it is designed, and I think this is wrong, but designed to kind of play a role that I think only God could play a role in and the, and the kind of intermediary institutions that God has designed, the family, the church, uh, and other institutions within civil society, um, which are much closer and more intimate to, to people than a kind of distant centralized government. And it is, it, it is, uh, it was a, it was a big concern of, of the opponents of the constitution that even back then under a more limited understanding of the constitution, that this government would be too distant and, 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 and a, and a too distant government has the potential for arbitrary or despotic or, uh, uh type rule. And it's, it's very interesting in our time that, that uh, large segments of the American population have, have turned to their hope, maybe hope from uh, a freedom from fear, on a, a distant, centralized, uh, largely impersonal federal government. And, and that'll be something to watch as we go further in the 21st century to see um, you know, the trajectory of American politics in this regard. Yeah, I don't feel, I, I think the reason I favor a smaller government is as I reflect on human nature, as I reflect on scripture and what scripture describes about human nature, that we are fallen, that we are, we have a tendency to gravitate toward um, exploiting others. (laughs) And, you know, that we need that. We need our souls to be informed by an objective moral standard that tells us how to love our neighbor in very, very tangible ways a smaller government to me helps reduce the possibility of human wickedness. It's a way that God can use as a human mechanism to help constrain evil. And that if the, if the government is focused on its, its God given role of being, you know, his deacon or his minister of justice and punishing the wicked and protecting the guilty, which is, or, protecting the innocent that is how god has set up human governments if if we can focus on on that role then i i think that it would help reduce my fear but i think that for me i fear huge government because to me when when government starts doing things that god hasn't told it to do and i know the human the wicked human nature 
that's like that's a recipe for difficulty, I think, in the long term. And so, you know, I'm I'm not optimistic about large centralized governments and having governments start to do um, womb to tomb care uh, for humanity. So I don't know. Those are just some of my musings on 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 the government issue from a theological perspective. No, that's right. And Romans 13, of course, is a is a key passage of scripture that 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 speaks to the role of government and it and its purposes. A lot of ink has been spilled on on whether Romans 13 confines the God ordained role for government to provide a, a kind of um, uh, well as we as we discussed before a kind of negative rights. You know that that government provide a, a safe and secure uh, environment that God has ordained the government to be a restrainer of evil. Um, whether God has ordained government to be the kind of positive provider of things, um, a lot of ink has been spilled. Um, I don't tend to take that view, uh, the, the scriptures. I think, um, though Romans 13 is not the United States Constitution, when we're talking about the American political order, um, you, you can't but have that conversation, but talk about the United States Constitution and how this political order was set up. It was set up with a much more limited sense of government, a much more decentralized uh, political system, and and in in what was assumed to take place was were, were things called intermediary institutions, things between the state and 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 the and the citizenry that provided a buffer, and that provided things that a government simply could not provide. And religion was seen as a key mediary institution. So it is not an unimportant question. Uh, and it's particularly the arm of the United States Supreme Court today that has kind of ruled religion out of place in the public order. And that's been one of the, the, the central focuses of my research is how the United States Supreme Court, through a, a rather um, interesting and largely historical revisionism, has interpreted the First Amendment to the Constitution to entail um, a kind of a secularized public square where religion needs to be kind of quarantined to the side. And we're living in light of that today. This has been so helpful, Dr. Waller. Thank you for hanging out with us and uh, would look, love to have you back again sometime and continue to talk about these intersections between the public square and our faith. It's been so great uh, for our 4th of July episode to have here yes. here to talk about freedom. So thank you so much for, for what you're doing and all that you're doing in Christian higher ed uh, to help educate the next generation. Freedom uh, with delightful. Frederick. No, fr yeah, not freedom, Frederick. Freedom with, well, <laughs> delightful <laughs> to be with you ladies. It, it's, uh, <laughs> it's been a, it's been a great way to um, uh, add to, add to our uh, 4th of July celebration is yeah. to talk about these important issues. With yeah. You. Thank you so much for leading this conversation. It's yeah. been awesome. Yeah. You bet. All right. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Yeah, take care. Okay. That, that was, good. that was really helpful. I, and I just, man, he's smart. It, that mm -hmm. was good. It I gave me a lot to think about and would love to have him on again to talk about some more, some more stuff. Yeah. That freedom from want though. Yeah. The freedom from want and the freedom from fear to me just sounds like, we want to be your God. Yeah. The replace. We like government's your daddy. <laughs> who your daddy? That's who the, your daddy. The, who, please don't say that. Okay. <laughs> Forgive us. Don't, don't um, say that. Um, you know, but, but really it's, it's a, who is your God? Yeah. And if I am trusting the government to keep me from fear or to keep me from want, I have made a huge error. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. 
All right. Uh, we're going to talk for a minute about our friends at Impact 360, and then we're going to have the Tweet of the Week and one more thing. Yes. So let's hear now from our friends at Impact 360 who are doing such good work to help partner with parents uh, in helping to build their kids' worldview. In fact, we are going there in two, two weeks. weeks to speak. So let's find out more about their important work. Change isn't going to come just because you want it to. Change comes because you are intentionally taking steps to making that change. I aspire to be someone who continues to build bridges with other cultures and who cultivates a community that's healthy and honoring to the Lord and life-giving. Now, after the program, I feel like I know what my purpose is and I know what I want to do going out into the world and how to not have this time to step back and just kind of be patient and be still and just listen. I don't think I would have had that same clarity. In this world, it's kind of like in a scream contest. Who can scream the loudest? And who's going to listen to that person yelling the loudest? And that person should be God. But he's not yelling. He's calling us. My hope going forward to interact with culture is to tell people like, hey, like, be still. Listen to this guy is calling you. He's calling you home. So, okay, there's our friends at Impact 360. We want to encourage you to go check them out. They have summer camp for high school, both one week and two week options. And they also have their nine month gap year options. I know they're taking applications for next year's gap program. So go check out their important work and see if that might be a good fit for your family. And now it's time for the tweet of the week. So we have in this week's tweet from somebody. We have no idea who this person is. Is this the one I sent to you? Yeah. Yay! So we don't know who David Webb is, but we liked this tweet. Uh, I spoke to a Kentucky teacher who has tapped out of the nonsense. She quit the school system and will be teaching a homeschool curriculum to five kids in her home. The parents pooled their money and will pay her to be their kid's private teacher. It's a concept whose time has come. Yes. I love it. I just love the vision. You know, it, it may not be for everyone, but I think having different um, opportunities to be able to truly speak into to kids is is awesome instead of just kind of the indoctrination that's happening. I love it that it's creative. Like, yeah, I, I feel like people are so we are so conditioned to. Well, this is how my life is showing up. This is what we do. This is mm -hmm. this. This is what the government tells me I must do or this is what. You know, everyone else does. I love it that they're saying we don't have to do it that way. Yeah. We can do something else. Yep. And getting five families together, pooling their money, hiring a teacher who's fed up with with mm -hmm. working in, in the public school system. All right. Let's opt out of that system and make something new for the good of our kids. Yes. I love it. Yes. More of that, please. Real good. <laughs> so that is our tweet of the week. Okay, let's go back to the beginning and tell people about the UP conference because we're getting a lot of people hop, hopping on here at the end. Okay, 
of Conference of 2021. You can find out information about it by going to centerforbiblicalunity.com backslash up 2021. This is our annual conference. It is happening September 9th to 11th. We have some fabulous plenary speakers. You and I are going to talk. I'm going to do a closeout speech. We have Abraham Hamilton III from Hamilton, the Hamilton Corner, and um, he's a policy analyst at American Family Radio. And we have Scott Allen, author of Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. We have Sam Say. We're going to have Edwin Ramirez. Yes. We're going to have our friend Cal Beisner. Yeah, Latasha Fields is going to be there. Also a former guest. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be there. And Katrina Elias. Uh, Katrina Elias, who's at MSW. Yes. So we got a great lineup. What I love about Monique's vision is that she's trying to create really practical talks uh, because one of the most common questions we get is, how do I do justice? Mm-hmm. How do I do it? All right. I, see I know the, I got to do I it. I know I got to do it. How do I do it? So this is to answer, help answer that question and build a biblical framework. And then what are some critical areas that we as Christians can practically do in our local context? Yes. You know, what can we do in our church, our community, or even just what can our family do? Yeah. You know, to stand for justice. But what you have to know is that for the next 24 hours, there's a special promo code FREEDOM. There's never going to be a cheaper price than the next 24 hours. Than the next 24 hours because you're getting the early bird price plus the 10% off. So if you're going to come to the UP conference, go register now. Use the promo code FREEDOM. You're getting 10% off the already discounted early bird price, but it expires tomorrow at 6 p.m. Pacific. Yes, 24 hours. So, all right. Okay, I think that's it for us. I think that's it. We made it to the finish line. We did. Have a very happy 4th of July. Yes. And uh, we just want to thank you for all your support, your kind words. You can see me wearing shorts here. It's hot, people. Uh, But um, just thank you. Just willy nilly. I know. I always say so. I was on camera. I'm like, oh, I'm uncovered. Uh, but thank you. You know, I don't know what's going on, but this side of the, the desk is all right, y'all. <laughs> Keeping it holy over there. Yeah. But we just want to say thank you for all your support, all your prayers, all your kind words. And we would love it if you would drop us a note today on what Monique and I have done to help you practically, like something specific. If you could share a story with us, if you're a pastor, a mom, a teacher, whatever you are, can you just take a few minutes to write us a note and tell us specifically how we have helped you. Uh, some days we just need to know, like, is does this matter? Are we really helping people? And if you could just tell us a story of how we have helped you, if we helped you um, shepherd your congregation better, or if we helped you prepare for a conversation with somebody in your life, or if, if you have renewed your faith as a result of some of our content, would you drop us a note and let us know so that on those harder days, we can read those and be encouraged and just know that the Lord is on the move. Yeah. We're also putting something together. So it's not just all about like our ego, yeah. but it, we're actually working and doing something. So we'll use some of those things yeah. um, for the project that we are working yeah, on. And the emails there on the stream or on the screen, att livestream at gmail.com. Yes. Okay. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. 
be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week. Bye.